Welcome to Ask of Expert, brought to you by the team at Vexit.com. Our bi-weekly series is the podcast helping business owners, managers, and professionals thrive in the world of modern work. Here's this week's host, Polly Craig. Well, hello, and thanks for joining us for this really important episode today. Today, we're going to dip our toe in the water to discover and explore what is truly a very big waterfront, sexual assault, sexual and racial harassment, and discrimination in the workplace. And just before we get started, as a reminder to those who may be new listeners, we've got some good reference material on today's topic and take all the notes for you, which can be found on our website at vexit.com forward slash podcast. And that's Vexit with two X's. In 2017, the MeToo hashtag went viral and woke the world up to the magnitude of the problem of sexual harassment and assault. What had begun as local grassroots work had now become a global movement, seemingly overnight. The Me Too and Black Lives Matter movements each took the working world by storm, bringing to the forefront issues of workplace sexual assault, sexual and racial harassment, and discrimination. Despite the appearance of reporting going up, a Harvard Business Review article shares findings that only 30% of employees experiencing harassment make internal complaints, and less than 15% file formal legal charges. It is troubling to see these issues so pervasive in workplaces. And it is a must for employers to create cultures that support employees and have the right policies in place. While the good news is that this misbehavior is getting attention and being condemned, the bad news is that it appears to be more prevalent than anyone wanted to believe. Leaders often feel uncomfortable and unprepared to respond to these allegations when they arise. Today's guest is an expert in labor and employment law with more than a decade of experience in this field. As a partner at renowned Canadian firm TDS Law, Scott Hepner has developed a wealth of knowledge as he's guided numerous organizations through workplace investigations from the legal perspective. Today, we'll talk about the steps to take as leaders if allegations arise in your workplace. Thanks so much for joining us and talking about this really important topic today, Scott. Not a problem. Thanks for having me. So as we mentioned, this is a very big waterfront and we're just dipping our toe into it. So why don't we just start off by, is there actually a definition of what sexual harassment and discrimination is? How do you even know what it is when you see it? That's a very good question, and it's going to vary across the jurisdictions in Canada. Uh, For example, in Manitoba, there are are a couple of different definitions you could go with. Um, We have our Human Rights Code in Manitoba that has uh, a specific definition of harassment, sexual harassment. And then we also have the Workplace Safety and Health Act and its regulations, which has unique definitions of harassment in there as well and what constitutes basically problematic behavior. So it's it's always going to change depending on where you are. But I think most people, I would hope most people now will know it when they see it. Because our audience is primarily made up of you know business owners, entrepreneurs, but also people that that work in a workplace, what is the first thing that an employer should do when something is presented to them. An employee either goes to one of the managers or comes directly to them to say that they've been sexually harassed. If something comes in, well, I always say coming in the door, but if someone approaches you with a potential problem, the very first thing I would do is I would sit down with them 
and say, okay, what's happened? A lot of the times when people come to these uh, to their employer with a complaint, it, they struggle with doing that for a number of reasons. One, it's a very personal issue. They don't necessarily want to raise it. Uh, there could be a level of distrust. Perhaps they feel like the employer won't take any action or they're going to be uh, black marked if they raise this and it's found to be without merit or they're seen to be going after a fellow employee. And so th- there should be a lot of or there is likely a lot of hesitation on people to bring these complaints forward. And so to the extent that you can make anyone more comfortable, I would say do that. Uh, but sit down with them on a very personal level and say, OK, I understand that you have a problem please let me know what's happened. And that way, you will accomplish a couple of things. Hopefully, you'll put them at ease. But also, in an ideal world, you can, for lack of a better term, pin them down on a specific fact set that you're dealing with. Because a lot of the time, when a complainant initially comes in, they might have a thousand and one things going through their mind, and they might tell you a bunch of things that don't make sense. But this allows you to sort of set the story in stone, and it gives you a fact set to work from. It also makes it much easier if you're performing an investigation from that point forward, because you have this discrete set of facts now. And so to the extent that the story starts to change later on in the process, that might give you cause to question whether or not they've been wholly truthful with you. So at that point, when they first come and see you, is it recommended that you have another person in the room or are you just there to listen? I think what I heard you say is the first thing you do is listen and get the story. Is it best to not respond and just take it all in? And at what point do you bring someone else in the room with you? And should you be documenting things? Yes, all of those things are fantastic things to do. So depending, again, on the nature of the complaint, they may not want another person in the room with you, but always from an evidentiary perspective, as the lawyer, I say, have a second person in the room, because then if there's any lack of clarity or recollection varies about what was said, it's always better to have had two people in the room or two people listening and taking notes about what was said rather than just one. Particularly so because if one person is sitting there asking questions, facilitating the story, often it's very hard to take accurate notes about what's going on. So a lot of the time, a best practice is to have someone asking questions, facilitating the story, while the second person takes notes about what happened. Once that's done, it's often a very good idea to then show the notes to the complainant, the individual making the allegation, say, this is what we've talked about. This is what we understood to have happened. Do my notes accurately reflect what you're saying? Is there anything else you'd like to add? And that way they have another chance at making sure you understand their story as well. I imagine that it would be important to make sure that the person feels at ease and that they can trust what is being said Are there certain things that shouldn't be said in that meeting? Obviously, you should not be making any judgments about what's happened. And so, again, it's very much a listening exercise. Um, You're there to present yourself as someone who wants to assist. So tell me what happened. I'm not going to make any judgment calls. I may ask you some questions if I'm unclear. Uh, But, you know, don't take that as me prejudging anything. That's not what I'm doing right now. It's just trying to get your story straight. And what about confidentiality? Do you suggest that both parties keep it confidential or is that 
actually adding fuel to the fire because they may want to share with other people in the company, how do you make sure that this doesn't get out of control? Confidentiality is a top priority in, in scenarios like this, For in my mind, for everyone's sake. From the complainant's perspective, typically they want these things to remain confidential because something very personal and terrible has happened to them. And so they don't want anyone talking about it uh, any more than employer necessarily wants people talking about it. The other aspect about it is, is from an investigation perspective, whoever is investigating this at the end of the day is most likely going to have to make a credibility determination. So they're going to have to say, okay, complainant told me story X, respondent told me story Y, and maybe there's some other witnesses who said A, B, and C. So who's telling the truth and what makes sense to me? But if you have all of the witnesses talking about these events after the fact, so it's happened and complainant has told you their version of events and they run off and tell their friends everything that happened and all the questions they were asked or all the witnesses, then inevitably what happens, it's human nature, is stories start to coalesce and mimic each other. And that's, as an investigator, that's not what you want. You want to hear everybody's independent recollection of what happened, untainted by any discussions that they've had with other people. And so you don't want the complainant talking about it with other people because you don't want their impression or their suggestions to impact what anyone else has seen and what they believe happened. Same thing with any respondent. You don't want them talking to anybody else about this, in part because you don't want them colluding with the witnesses. But what you want to do is have everybody's version of events as untainted, unimpacted, unprejudiced by anyone else in the process. And so confidentiality is a key, and you need to make that clear to everyone in the process as you're interviewing them, as you're speaking with them, you need to keep this confidential. We as the employer or the investigator will continue to keep this confidential to the extent possible. There are going to be certain things we have to tell you um, or tell other parties about the investigation as we're going, Um, but we will try and keep your information as confidential as we possibly can. You've referenced a couple of times uh, the investigator, and I'm assuming that that would be someone like yourself, a lawyer. At what point, what's the timing on this? One is more a point. I'm assuming that you want to address this very quickly. You don't Mm -hmm. brush these things aside, that this goes to the very top of the list priority-wise. And at what point do you contact uh, a lawyer, or as you say, can you explain what an investigator does and your role? Before we talk about the investigator themselves, it might make more sense to talk about general process because who the investigator is, when they're brought on board, that all changes depending on the circumstances. For example, and not to minimize anyone's experience in any way, uh, but not every complaint will warrant the cost and expense of a lawyer or a different independent investigator. Uh, So you have to, each investigation will be tailored to the specific fact sets. But very generally, and every scenario is going to be a little bit different, uh, what's going to happen in the normal course is the complainant's going to come to you with a fact set with a certain allegation of something that happened. Now, if you are an employer that has an investigation or harassment policy in place, which if you're in Manitoba, you should absolutely have one in place because it's a legislated requirement. So you have to have these things in place. 
according to the Workplace Safety and Health Act regulations. But you're going to have this policy and it's going to guide what you do. But in that policy or in the absence of a policy, very generally, what happens is you'll get the complaint in. You'll then look at that complaint and you'll say, if we take this all at face value, would this constitute harassment? Would this be a violation of some policy? If, you know, on its best day, it couldn't be that, it might be that the complaint gets dismissed immediately, or you take it back to the complainant and say, look, we're looking at the policy, we're looking at the facts that we don't really see how this is harassment, but can you help us understand? So give them a second chance to flesh everything out. But once the complaint comes in the door, presuming that on its face, it looks like it could be a problem, it's potentially harassment, then what you normally do is you uh, notify the respondent, you say, you know, a complaint has been filed, and we are going to be in touch with you to get your version of events. And whether it's, you know, our human resources department, or it's a different investigator, uh, we will be in touch with you to guide you through the process. Now, it's very important to be upfront and very communicative with both sides. It's my experience that the employer's intentions are always on, on the up and up and good faith and wanting to deal with this the right way. But the second that you don't communicate clearly and quickly with either party, they immediately start to assume the worst, the employer isn't treating me fairly, or so-and-so is out to get me, or the converse is that they don't believe me. Everybody starts to assume the worst. And so a little communication at the outset and every step of the way, giving expected timelines of, you know, here's what we're going to do first. Here's what we're going to do second. Here's what we're going to do third. Here's how long we think it's going to take goes a long way to keeping the temperature of the situation at a manageable level. So you get the complaint in, you've told the complaint and the respondent that you, you are taking this in, you're going to deal with it. Then you need to figure out who's going to investigate this thing. And so, again, that depends on the fact set and how serious the allegations are. If you're dealing with sexual assault or, you know, even taking it out of the harassment world, but into something serious like theft or assault, it might be that the scenario warrants someone who does this on a daily basis or as part of their job, who is well-seasoned in making credibility uh, analysis and decisions. And so you might want to go with a lawyer or an independent investigator. Or you might have, you might be a large organization with a human resources department who's fully capable of handling this. Um, but you, so you look at the allegations, you look at the timing, you look at your own level of resources at the time. Like even if we do have a human resources department, do they have the time to drop everything and deal with us? So there's a lot of those types of considerations that go into who you get to do it. And I imagine just to interrupt there a bit, you alluded to large companies may have, you know, departments that deal with this for a smaller uh, business. And, you know, well, we'll maybe we started backwards because maybe what we'll end up getting to is talking about what we can put in place in advance um, Mm -hmm. as far as policies and and procedures. Um, So for a small, medium-sized business, you've got an allegation. You don't necessarily have the staff uh, to do that. Um, is there kind of a hybrid model where you could get uh, professional advice to help you through it without bringing in um, somebody that actually has to do the actual work? That That's certainly an option. And I've certainly played that role as well. So I've, I've played the whole role from investigator 
to someone who sits in the background and advises the investigator or the employer as they're going through the processing. Okay, first you meet with this person. Here's the types of questions you're going to ask. Then you're going to meet with this person. Here's the types of questions you're going to ask. Now you have to make a decision. You've got these fact sets. So like literally advising them, and I don't want this to sound condescending, but holding their hand through the process, uh, but not only as a resource for assistance, but also as a sounding board, because as the investigator, it's a bit of a lonely position because everything is supposed to be confidential. You're not going to be going to your confidants about here's what I've investigated, here's what I think is happening, because you have to hold this all internally in confidentiality or in, in, confidence. in confidence. And so you <laughs> ought not be talking about this with other people as well. But as legal counsel, you can tell me because everything's subject to solicitor client privilege. And so I can not only provide advice, but act as a sounding board in the sense that if you have these two competing versions and, and you just can't figure out which you believe to be true, well, a lot of the time just talking through it with me gets that person to the result. They just need someone to be able to work through it with. Well, and I can only imagine that most of these situations are very emotional. Uh, you know, it's not a black and white type of situation and having the ability to have somebody uh, there that you can share your thought process mm -hmm. with and not make assumptions. Uh, interpretation must play a role in that. Very much so. It's almost a, a roller coaster of emotion, for lack of a better term, um, because you are going to get the allegation in first, and it's going to look very clearly like someone did something terribly wrong. And you might look at it and say, I can't possibly think of an explanation that the respondent is going to say that's going to impact this fact set. And then you meet with the respondent. And again, you're not drawing any pre-conclusions because you're the investigator and you're impartial, but you meet with the, the respondent and they tell you their version of events and, and you go, oh yeah, that, that does make sense. And I see their, their perspective and this isn't black and white and it's definitely gray. And I'm going to have to get down in the mud and figure this out. It's, it's rarely, rarely, if ever, straightforward. On that point, you know, I can, I can see you get a complaint in. Now you have to approach the individual that's being accused, assuming that this is um, maybe sexual harassment. We'll use that just as an example. But that can be done incorrectly, too. Like when you approach, I'm imagining you don't say, here's what someone's accusing you of. You are better off to ask questions and should somebody that's not trained in this actually even be approaching this person or should you have somebody alongside of you at that point? If you've never done it before, I would say, and again, depending on the allegations, it might not be the right one to cut your teeth on. Everybody has to do something for the first time. And so in an ideal world, if you have that luxury as the employer um, the first time that the investigator is cutting their teeth, the human resources consultant or whoever's dealing with it is dealing with something of a minor nature that, you know, even if, for lack of a better term, we screw this one up, we can still manage the fallout from that without it impacting anyone too severely. But if you have a very serious scenario, that's not something you want someone cutting their teeth on because not only is it going to affect 
impact the complainant. It's going to impact the respondent. It's going to impact you as the employer. Like everyone's rear end is on the line during one of these things. And so it is worth everybody's time and resources to do it the right way. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. Absolutely. For, for companies who may have a board or that has, um, depending on their governance structure, at some point, when do you have to disclose that you have uh, certain allegations going on because that could impact, you know, you don't want them reading it in the newspaper or or hearing it on social media. And, and that's sort of the, the next part is how do you contain and respond to anything that gets out there in this crazy social media world that we have? Yeah, the, the response aspect of this is probably, I'm going to say one of the more challenging aspects. And that's because a lot of it happens outside of your control. And so lawyers are A-type personalities. We love to be in control of everything. We love to control the investigation. We love to control the fact sets. We want to be in control so that we can guide the result to where we deem it or where we want it to go. The problem with social media is it's not in our control at any point in time. And depending on how you respond to it might only fan the flames. And so responding to social media becomes a very difficult animal to deal with. And my typical approach is, um, what's the best way to say this, is not to engage. I think if you engage then that feeds the fire. It will almost ensure that whatever has started is going to gain steam and continue on, perhaps get spread. They're going to take what you've said or they're going to take what the employer has said and they're going to misconstrue it and turn it into something bigger than it is. As hard as it is to do, my view is that you rise above it to an extent that means that you might have to take some lumps in social media. That doesn't mean you don't say anything, but it might mean that you post a generic response on the company's website, addressing rumors, addressing certain allegations, but setting out, for example, that you know there's certain allegations that have been made. We take each and every allegation seriously. We'll be investigating, we'll be taking appropriate action. But obviously beyond that, we're not going to disclose the the individual results or the findings because this applies to so many people and impacts the confidentiality of so many people. So it's not like you can just uh, say everything that's happening otherwise, but you have to, you might have to respond, but it's going to be necessarily generic in a sense. Absolutely. Because if you say nothing, then people will assume that you have nothing to stand for and that perhaps that the allegations are true, but to stand up for your values and, and, and having a generic statement sounds like, mm-hmm. you know, you can think of all kinds of examples where companies have come out and, and owned a situation, mm-hmm. not referencing a specific allegation, but by sharing what their, their policies and values are that 
that then you go, okay, there, the person has a situation, it is being heard. And yeah. so it can, it can put the company in a better light. Exactly. Like it's key to convey that you've taken, you've understood the complaint, you're taking them seriously, you're doing your due diligence, you're not ignoring it. And that if there is corrective action to be taken, corrective action will be taken and the situation will be addressed. Um, those are the key, the key mm-hmm. points. And just wonder, what if you get wind of something in it, but it's secondhand, you know, it's third party, you know, so-and-so is apparently, you know, it's rumor. Mm-hmm. It, does a business owner have a responsibility to investigate or, or try and get to the bottom of, of those types of situations? My view is that they do. And in Manitoba in particular, an example I'll give you is under the Human Rights Code, you have an obligation to put an end to any harassment. And so if you get wind of this harassment that's in the workplace, and so it's being raised to you, even though you don't know that it's true, it's just rumor right now, but you're you're notionally aware of this, and you've done nothing about it, that exposes you then to potential complaints in the future, because you were notionally aware Fail to take any steps to address this. And so even if it's rumor, in my view, you have to act. And that might be as simple as sitting down with the person who first raised this with you or floated it past you, getting more details, trying to figure out who this is about, and then approaching that person and saying, okay, I know that this might be awkward, but we've heard this. We just want to clarify, is anything like this happened? Is it not wrong? But, but almost forcing them into being upfront about the situation. And they might say, you know what, some of the stuff has happened, but I don't want to bring a complaint, which changes how you react to it. Or they might say, yes, thank you so much for bringing this to me. I didn't think that anybody cared. Absolutely. I want to make a complaint. Like there's a, there's a bunch of different responses and it may even be that they don't want to engage in the investigation, but given the nature of the allegations, as the employer, you still have to go through the process to figure out whether or not anything's happened. For example, if someone is, if the rumors are about sexual assault and the complainant says, yeah, like this happened, but please don't do anything about it. As the employer, I don't know that you can just ignore that because what if, let's even say it's their their superior, what if this is a pattern of behavior that um, individual is using their position of authority to abuse anyone who's their direct report? Like that's not something that you can just sit on. So what can co- companies do to prepare themselves? Are there sort of a handful of things that you should include in policies and what are the names of those policies and what needs to be part of them? The easiest one and or the first step that anyone should be taking is preparing one of these policies or having their counsel prepare one for them. In my view, there's kind of two approaches you can take to these policies. For example, in Manitoba, I think it's our Manitoba WorkSafe website has a draft policy that you can take. And it's a very bare bones policy. It meets the minimum requirements of the act, but it's something employers can take and at least have that in place if one of these things arises. In my view, and obviously I'm a lawyer, so I'm, I'm partial to this. And part of this is how I you know, earn my living. But I think it makes far more sense to have a lawyer prepare a more robust in harassment policy. 
And the reason is this, not only is it going to incorporate all of the things that the law says it has to have in there, but for example, with policies I prepare, they go so far as to give a very detailed step-by-step approach to what happens if someone files a complaint. Okay, so someone's raised these allegations with me, what do I do? I can then go to that policy and it will take me through step-by-step, here's what I've done, or here's what's happened, here's what I have to do next. Okay, I've done that, here's what I have to do next. And the reason that is so helpful, in my view, is because if you don't deal with this on a regular basis, you are going to get these allegations in. There's going to be a very distraught employee who is demanding something to be done right now. You might get whipped up in the frenzy of the allegations and, oh my goodness, what have this happened? And and you'll become discombobulated and it becomes difficult to find the forest for the trees. And so when you have the policy to fall back on, and obviously you have counsel to fall back on as well, but it gives you a degree of comfort that you can go to this You can say, I know exactly what I need to do, and here's what I'm going to do, and here's how I'm going to tackle this problem. And when you start to break it down and break it down into a step-by-step or bite-sized chunks, the overall um, level of intimidation in investigating serious allegations becomes much much more manageable. Then it's not just employee has said they've been sexually assaulted or harassed by, you know, CEO. How the heck do I deal with this? It's okay. I know exactly what I need to do, and here's how I'm going to start doing it. Well, it's a roadmap for the employer. And then I imagine you would also have policies for the employees. So as part of their uh, personnel policy would be their, just what are the names of the policies? Is sexual harassment different than discrimination? And have things changed in the last while because there's so much light being shed on this and giving people the ability to understand what their rights are? Yeah. I mean, for me, it's all in one policy. It's It's been drafted in a broad enough way that it deals with all of those things. So there's a specific, in mine, for example, it's a harassment and violence prevention policy. So it deals very broadly with that. But as part of that, as part of the definition of harassment, it very easily encompasses discrimination, that kind of a thing. But employers will often have discrimination policies as well. So, you know, we fully recognize the human rights code. We are committed to following its terms. We're committed to accommodating where possible. We're committed to ending harassment. We're committed to avoiding discrimination, you know, all of those types of things. And does it include that if something happens, that here's the process that you talk to your supervisor and if they don't have the comfort level or maybe they're the situation that there's a... Yeah. A roadmap for them as well? Yeah. For example, in my policy, it says, okay, if you've got a complaint, here's what you do. It even has a complaint form attached to the schedule. So you can go to the policy itself, you know, photocopy that page and say, okay, I'm going to put in the details of my allegation. I'm going to date it. I'm going to sign it. I'm going to bring it to. And it tells you who to bring it to kind of thing. If I'm being hired by a company, should I be asking if they have a human rights policy or a discrimination policy? One of the first questions an investigator or a lawyer who's being contacted for the first time by a company who's dealing with this will be, you know, A, what's happened or what are the allegations and B, do you have policies in place? What do those policies say? Uh, because when you're dealing with this as an investigator or even the lawyer, if you're advising on discipline for some of these people, like they've gone through the investigation, they've concluded this happened, and now you're trying to decide what should we do about that? What kind of corrective action are we taking? 
much will turn on the terms of the policies themselves. So in Manitoba, and I'm assuming across every jurisdiction in Canada, there's going to be set definitions. And so it might be conduct in one jurisdiction is harassment where it might not be in another. Uh, but by and large, they're all going to be very comparable. But I will also have clients who have definitions that are much broader than what's statutorily mandated. So, you know, the statute might say A, B, and C are going to be harassment. But us as the employer, we're going to decide that E, F, and G are also harassment because we don't want that in our workplace either. Even if it's close to the edge, we just deem that kind of behavior unacceptable. And so we're going to put this in our notion of harassment. So if employees are doing that as well, that's something we're going to be acting on. And what about timelines? Now we hear stories of cases that happened years and years ago. So if somebody that no longer works for a company, but comes back years later to say that they were harassed while they worked there 10 years ago, is there Mm -hmm. some sort of limitation on that? It depends on the circumstances. Um, For example, East each piece of legislation, like a human rights code, is going to have its own time limit for raising complaints under that legislation. In Manitoba, we also have the statute of limitations, which right now for breach of contract will have its own timeline as well. And so if employer is saying or employees saying, you know, you didn't do anything about this and it was a breach of my contract and I should be awarded damages, uh, that might play into it as well. But on the whole, I would say two things. First, there is an obligation to complete these investigations in as timely fashion as possible. There's the phrase that's justice delayed is justice denied. That is very much applicable here um, for both the complainant and the respondent. This is something you need to nip in the bud one way or another. The second piece is that even if the individual is no longer an employee, that doesn't mean that you should just ignore this as well. I've had scenarios where former employee has raised allegations and they are sufficiently concerning that the employer still went through an investigation at that point, in part because the respondent was still employed there. And so if there are things that are happening, you still need to know as the employer. So it's not enough just to say this isn't an employee with us anymore. It very well might be that the circumstances are such that we still need to look into this and we might still have to do something about this. I was wondering if I were to go and buy a company, part of my due diligence process, is there a way for me to know whether or not that company has been charged with allegations? What if they've got a situation that isn't disclosed? It will depend on the nature of the due diligence investigations that's being conducted. Um, But you can do searches for human rights complaints. So for example, someone could have done, you know, allegations that constitute a problem under harassment, violence prevention policy may also notionally fall under the human rights code. And so there might also be a corresponding complaint that's been filed with human rights. There might have been a complaint filed with workplace safety and health saying my employer has failed to take steps to provide me with a safe and healthy workplace. So there are some other avenues that you can do due diligence to find out whether or not there's been complaints filed beyond just the normal court proceedings and doing the court searches. Um, If you are buying a company and you are concerned about these things and you're concerned about 
events not necessarily being captured in those types of searches. You can also do things like work in specific representations and warranties about the business. So, you know, the vendor is representing that there is no current ongoing investigations regarding sexual harassment complaints, those types of things. So there are other things you can do to protect yourself as a potential purchaser. Um, It's not always perfect, but there are steps you can take. Well, I'm just in awe at how detailed we can get into this, but we are talking about people's lives and how important it is to, first of all, communicate, which I heard. The second thing I heard was do it in a timely fashion so that make it a priority and the immediacy on that and understand and communicate what your policies are and your procedures for both sides of the situation. What didn't we touch on in this very important uh, topic that we're touching on today? I would say fairness. And specifically, I'm saying fairness because I feel like that is something that is not forgotten by employers. I think they're well aware of that, but is forgotten in the storm of social media. And so um, social media is an incredibly powerful tool. It has affected all kinds of change in today's society. But as the employer who is often caught up in that, you don't just have an obligation to the complainant to provide them with a safe and healthy workplace to ensure that no harassment is ongoing, but you have an obligation to the respondent, so the accused in this case, to ensure that they're being dealt with fairly as well. So you can't just take allegations, accept them at face value and impose discipline or or fire someone, kick them to the curb because they have a right to be heard. You have to hear their story, determine what actually happened before you make your decision about what comes next. So it becomes very tempting, I believe, to get caught up in the whirlwind of social media. You want to be able to tell the, the public opinion storm that we have done something about this and employee X is no longer with the company, but you can't do that without having the take, without having taken the investigatory steps beforehand, just to make sure that, yeah, this actually did happen. And, you know, we think there's cause for discipline or we even think there's cause for termination and then acting on it in that sense, because if you just fire them based on allegations, it may very well turn out that you don't have just cause for termination and respondent is bringing a court case against you. And all of a sudden you're paying them thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars because you didn't take these preliminary steps. How many more employees will you lose? And, and those stories live on right or wrong. They live live on. on. And, and employers are caught between a rock and a hard place when it comes to these scenarios, because as much as employees don't want to see someone else not be not having been given a fair shake in responding, it also plays the other way in that you don't want potential employees to see either side of this playing out in an unfair manner and going, you know what, I don't want to work for an employer that doesn't do anything with these allegations, or I don't want to work for an employer who doesn't address these or give everyone a fair shake. And so uh, there's kind of criticism coming at you from all sides, which is, again, understanding and underscoring why it's so important to make sure you're dealing with the process in the right way, because you want to be seen as the employer as being level-headed, fair, and just. 
Well, that's a great way to end this great conversation. And I just hope that, you know, we take notes for the people. We will put your contact information in there. And we'll also include a couple of articles that sort of back up what you're saying as well, Scott, because as business owners, you know, we may know a lot about our businesses, but when it comes to our human capital, we need to invest in that and make sure that we're looking at after them from day one. And that includes proper policies, procedures, and making sure that we have the right counsel on our side. So thank you for your time today. And we, with that, we will say justice delayed is justice denied. That's your quote. It's not, it's, I can't take credit for it, but <laughs> it, it is a real quote, just not from me. That's great. Thank you very much for having me. Well, that was a lot of great information from our expert Scott Hapner with TDS Law. And be sure to go to vexit.com forward slash podcast to access the show notes and reference material. And we'd love for you to continue exploring and join in on all our conversations. They happen throughout most social media channels and on vexit.com. Our goal is to help you live your best life by giving you access to knowledge and expertise you can trust while navigating through life's important moments. Then when the time comes and you need to engage with a professional, you can find it by using our free matching tool. By the way, if you have ideas for topics that you'd like covered or a problem you want to have solved, we'd love to hear from you and we'll ask a expert for you. Just email me directly and it goes to myself and our team, podcast at vexit.com. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. The Ask a Vexpert podcast is a production of Vexit and distributed globally by the Sound Off Media Company. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com.